One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, that was great, wasn't it? Yet another weekend of deadlines being passed, arrangements being ripped asunder and more extensions than a neighbour with a home equity loan. Uh, We've heard it all now, going the extra mile, entering the final stretch. We've come this far, progress is being made, useful phone calls, blah, 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 blah. What difference does it make if they extend the talks until tomorrow? Or until the day after tomorrow? Or until next week? Or indeed until, uh, I don't know, Christmas? What do you think? What about Boxing Day? Uh, Why don't set another deadline and have it for two days after Boxing Day? And then if things go well, you can take it back a day and then you can stop on the 27th, is it? Or maybe you should go all the way to the 31st of December uh, and have no deal then. What on earth is going on? Meanwhile, Prime Minister Boris Johnson continues to assure us that no deal is the most likely outcome, despite continuing the talks. We're talking about Brexit, of course. And EU President Ursula von der Leyen says the two parties have a responsibility to keep on talking and working towards a deal. Well, why exactly? Am I the only one that's a bit puzzled by all of this? Can anyone tell me? Surely any deal now is going to be either bad for us or bad for them. So therefore, there's not much point in having one, is there? Unless they want to be unhappy, or we do. So no deal is obviously better for both of us then, isn't it? Apart from those people who say no deal is the worst possible case scenario and is an absolute catastrophe. Um, I just don't know, really. We'll be asking Tory MP Andrew Bridget and see what he makes of it all. 03444991000. I absolutely don't want any of you lot ringing me, though, to tell me what you think about whether it's worth getting a deal or not. I'm joking, of course. That was the other guy from the other place. Uh, Meanwhile, Prince Andrew made a return to the front pages, of course, uh, at the weekend. The wayward son of the Queen is now being accused of lying in his car crash TV interview with Emily Maitlis last year, in which he denied staying at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion in New York uh, while a trafficked teenager was there, the one he's accused of having sex with. Well, we already knew that he lied in it because he said he didn't sweat either. (laughs) He also said he wasn't a member of the royal family and his name wasn't Andrew. What's wrong with the world these days? Meghan Markle's in the news again as well. She's been talking to CNN. She's been on the bench in the garden again. Just about surviving. Coming up later on, we'll be talking to Peter Hitchens, of course, about, amongst other things, his column in the Mail on Sunday asserting the poor calibre of modern-day politicians and a decision by Germany to lock up the country through Christmas and beyond. And just to prove the Office for National Statistics is in touch with ordinary families out there, apparently we all saved over 7,000 quid during lockdown. Really? What planet are these people on? We are listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
Hey, here's some interesting news as well. Just in, uh, the government have apparently rejected our petition to change the law uh, to uh, make it uh, equal parity between cyclists, motorists and e-scooters. You've rejected it? Excuse me, I pay you. You do not pay me. I tell you what you'd want to do. You don't tell me. We'll come back to that uh, coming up in a little while. Uh, first, though, let's talk to Andrew Bridging, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire, member of the European Research Group, of course. Andrew, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. So, I mean, you're probably as fed up with all of this as I am. What is the point of all these negotiations exactly when Boris keeps telling us that there is no chance of a deal, there probably will be no deal, and yet we are duty-bound, apparently, to continue talking about the possibility of having one? Well, I think it's putting more pressure on the European Union. I mean, if you're, you think back a few weeks, um, Boris actually called a line under the negotiation and said, look, we can't do a deal. Uh, the talks have ended. And it was the European Union that came back. Uh, at that time, Boris made it very clear that they've got to come back with concessions. And it would appear that they've pretty much ignored that and carried on. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, so so why does he continue to entertain the notion? Is would be my question. Well, I did. I think I tweeted at the weekend that uh, the, the negotiations that currently are a bit like uh, a lobe of concerned parties standing around a hospital bed, where they they know the patient's expired, can't be resuscitated, but no one <laughs> wants to turn the life support off uh, and take responsibility. Yeah. Um, I think. I think. While there's a chance of a deal, it's probably anyone who refused it would be seen as irresponsible. But, I mean, any sort of a deal we got now, how much parliamentary scrutiny of the detail, and as we know with any deal with the European Union, the devil is always in the detail. Right. Uh, how are we supposed to study this deal and, and decide whether we want to vote for it or support it or not? Well, that's um, the thing. I that, mean, I'm told there's something like 600 pages to look at already, isn't there? Well, I mean, that's not going to be a five-minute job, is it? You, and it's not something you want to speed read um, because um, we've been caught out on, on that before. The problem is, Mike, as you know, I mean, we want a trade deal. We joined the European Union because it was a, a common market and it was all about trade. But for the European Union, it's all about politics. And they see these negotiations as a way and that any treaty uh, coming from it not as a trade deal. They see it as a way of taking back control of the UK through the back door. Yes. And we haven't even left yet. Um, and it's hard to see how the Prime Minister's got any room to give uh, on the level playing field or governance. We can't have the European Court of Justice uh, overseeing any treaty because that's marking your own homework. Um, the EU will always get 100% and we'll get uh, in the naughty corner all the time. Um, and, uh, and the level playing field, it sounds innocuous enough, but it means basically undermining Brexit. We won't be taking back control of our laws. We'll be under EU law now in the future. And can you imagine if the EU in the future decides to put onerous uh, regulations on financial services, something right. that doesn't affect them very much, but, but does affect the UK a great deal, and we wouldn't even be at the table to object to it. Mm. So it's very difficult to see how anything gives. I mean, I've been saying for weeks that the, uh, the fishing issue is a red herring. Uh, they'll they'll concede on the fish because they know they haven't got a leg to stand on there uh, legally anywhere in the world. Um, but that is to try and induce us to make concessions on what they really want, which is, is the level playing field. Yes. And we can't do it. And I mean, a level playing field, I think, should be renamed because it sounds, as you say, quite innocuous to want a level playing field. But that's not. Well, who exactly... wouldn't? What well, yeah, but that's, but that's not what it is, is it? That's like saying that, you know, the, the armed robber uh, is a gentleman standing at the door. 
You know, it's a wealth redistributor. Is is a wealth redistributor, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, and it's also, as you say, their way of continuing to keep control over what it is that is basically our own internal market. I mean, Giva Hofstadt today uh, has tweeted out saying, you know, gunboats, gunboats in the sea. We're supposed to be friends, not enemies. To which I said, well, maybe you should stop uh, telling your friends, you know, you know, telling your friends to stop stealing the fish. You know. Yes. Well, indeed. So. uh... The torment goes on. It is worse than Noel Edmonds' deal or no deal, isn't it, really? <laughs> I mean, that, I mean... Man, that's a low blow, Andrew, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, it's not that bad. But listen, here's the thing. Why, why does why does old um, uh, Boris not just... I mean, I'm, I'm, I was given a theory over the weekend, and I'm beginning to think it might be true, that he's kind of playing them at their own game here, and he's basically trying to make it clear that if there is no deal, which is almost inevitable, that it will be their fault rather than his. I think there's some of that. There is going to be a blame game afterwards. And, uh, you know, he who calls or she who calls the end to the uh, negotiations first is going to get the blame. I think also your, your listeners uh, need to, uh, you know, brought into stark uh, focus was the, the democratic deficit of the European Union compared to uh, the now independent mm. sovereign UK. So Boris went over to who's elected and accountable for his actions, went over to see uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the EU president, who was appointed, and she can do whatever she wants. Uh, she's not politically accountable. Boris wanted um, um, Merkel and, um, and, and Macron to be there as well, because they are actually elected in their own countries, and the, the EU refused. And, and that just demonstrates to me um, that the EU have got a huge democratic deficit, which allows them to do things which are detrimental to the workers and the people of their of the of the European Union, um, with, with with basically no comebacks. Um, another reason why we're leaving. Well, exactly right. And as far as the other countries are concerned, I mean, Germany, which we're going to talk about later on in terms of its kind of new um, rapid lockdown policy, um, Angela Merkel seems to have lost the plot a little bit lately, doesn't she? I mean, she seems to be sort of flailing about all over the place on all sorts of things. Well, she lost the plot uh, when she opened Europe's borders unilaterally without consultation with any other country and allowed millions of migrants to uh, to come in, into the European mm. Union. That was that was a huge mistake. And I think that that was basically what sealed uh, that we'd be leaving some years later, the European Union. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. And as far as the, um, uh, the party is concerned, um, I mean, Boris seems to have had, uh, a, with Brexit, a relatively good sort of few days in a way, because it's got him away from the whole coronavirus questions, the uh, the dealing with that particular problem, which which I, I appreciate hasn't been easy for him, but, you know, he hasn't got a lot of support in the country for that. But it seems as though Brexit has kind of, in a way, slightly rejuvenated him. Well, he's had a chance to play on the world stage. Uh, that's always good for any politician. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, upsetting foreign governments, when has that ever dented the popularity of a British prime minister? Mm. Yes, well, quite right. And what about Macron? Where, where is he now in all of this? Because he was kind of knocking well, around last he's, week, he's, making a lot of noise. He, he's between a rock and a hard place. Um, I, I don't envy French politicians, uh, really. I mean, France is becoming an ungovernable country. They fall into and out of love with their, their politicians very, very quickly. And he's got elections coming up, uh, which uh, he's, he's, not, uh, he's trailing in the polls. And he played to the crowd, made promises to French fishermen, and I suppose he will say that he stood strong, even if that means ultimately that they get less access than they would have done under a, a negotiated treaty. I'm quite happy 
and I think the government's quite happy to give access to our waters to EU boats, but we've got to be in charge of it. It's got to be decided each year and it's got to be on a sliding scale as our own industry expands over the years to uh, to take up the uh, the opportunity created by Brexit in the fishing industry. Mm. And if they won't accept that, I mean, you know, there's nowhere to go. But, but they could end up in a situation where they have considerably less access to our waters um, than they might have done. And obviously uh, Macron's probably going to get the blame either way. But I mean, he's probably toast anyway, to be honest. Well, exactly right, because if he does lose the fishing battle, which we look as though we're going to win, um, and, and I'm, I'm with you, I don't, I don't expect us to be able to suddenly fish all of our own waters, but we should be charging them a pretty penny for their right to do so. Uh, there's a pretty good chance that he will lose quite a lot of those North Normandy constituencies to to some other parties, and which might be actually pro-Frexit uh, parties as well. Well, we, I think we, we're watching uh, Euroscepticism increase um, across U the European Union. And I think, quite honestly, you know, trying to damage the UK through not doing a trade deal with us uh, is a blade that cuts both ways, Mike. So, yes, it, it will hurt us, but we can get over that. It's a short-term disruption. But when the uh, German car worker and the French farmer and the, the Spaniards and Portuguese who work in the holiday industry, which service UK uh, visitors realize that the eu negotiators care more about their jobs and the future of the european union than they do about their citizens jobs and um, there's got to be a backlash somewhere along the line there's got to be some accountability for the actions they're taking yes i think that's absolutely right moving back to domestic matters andrew how are things i know you're in north leicestershire so you always say you're not quite in northwest the... northwest less well, well let's not get too specific maybe north well, I'll northwest let you into, i'll let you in i'll let you into a little secret we, we had a, we had some more antics i mean as you probably know, I voted against the government last week, the other week, uh, because uh, they linked my constituency with the, with Leicester, which has been in, in lockdown all the way through. It was the first city into lockdown. There's, I said, there's, while we're linked to Leicester, the chance of us getting out of tier three is somewhere between um, slim and zero and slim just left. Right. So uh, we caught the, uh, the one of the Labour deputy mayors again, uh, holding a rally for hundreds of people, no social distancing, no uh, no face masks. Uh, and they post that they're so they posted it actually on social media. It's unbelievable. And um, I sent it to Matt Hancock and said, "Look, what chance have we got? We're down to 110 cases per hundred thousand. So we're at the very bottom of tier two, but we're still stuck in tier three in Northwest Leicestershire. Yeah. And uh, between you and me, as long as you don't tell anybody, yeah. Um, Matt Hancock texted me back and said, "We're going to de-link you with Leicester." That's a very good so, plan. Uh, but I mean, so, so that, that that sounds good. I, I was hoping it was going to be permanent, to be honest, Mike. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose you can always hope and live in hope. But, I mean, there is this mad kind of uh, dash, isn't there, from when we've got Sadiq Khan in London talking about locking up uh, the school gates and telling the kids in Greenwich that they can't go back to school. Um, he seems to have pivoted completely now, 360 degrees uh, via 180 degrees, where he wanted to close all the bars and restaurants and keep the schools open. Now he wants to do the opposite. Yeah, well, Labour have got no policy on Brexit. They've got no policy on on covid um i mean the fact is that while my constituency is linked with leicester for the covid tiers purposes it doesn't matter what we do we're never going to get out of tier three and i blame the labor administration in leicester and the mayor who's transgressed himself on numerous occasions of being caught breaking the lockdown setting a bad example yeah i mean he's put that those those hospitality businesses in leicester have never been out of lockdown since last march he's ruined thousands and thousands of businesses and hundreds of thousands of lives and 
while we're linked to him, he's having that detrimental effect on my constituents. And that's not what they voted for. It's not what they support. And I can't allow it to carry on. It's not fair. No, it really isn't. So are you hopeful that perhaps you might have a bit of good news this week in terms of the uh, the tears then? I'm, I'm, I'm hope so. And I think some of the, I think perhaps Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire will be coming out of tier three as well, which will be will be good for them. And that's that's most of my board. I've, I've got more of a board with Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire than I do with Leicestershire, actually. Yes, absolutely right. Well, good to talk to you, Andrew. Meanwhile, uh, the deadlines will continue to be busted. The uh, uh, the European com- uh, conversation goes on. Andrew Bridgen talking to us from North West Leicestershire. Make no mistake, uh, that's exactly where it is and that's exactly where he is. Uh, he doesn't want it to be twinned with any other part of Leicester uh, because, as we say, it's been in lockdown for months on end. And guess what? It's not doing any good. What's the point of it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Angela Levin, our favourite royal biographer, uh, because Prince Andrew, believe it or not, is back in the news. Front page of the Daily Mail this morning, new Andrew bombshell, about five pages inside uh, of the, uh, the the new sort of details of his trip to New York, uh, which he denied, in, in, during which he supposedly denied staying at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion. His trip to the Puppet Master's mansion, this time for the night, according to the exclusive dossier. Uh, it's a pretty bad situation, really, not least for the Queen. Uh, coming up to Christmas, Angela. Very good morning to you. Good morning. Just when yeah, you th- just when you thought you know old uh, Queenie could could have a relatively kind of quiet Christmas in Windsor, not worrying too much about Harry, not worrying too much about Charles. Suddenly Andrew pops up again to ruin everything. Well, yes, yeah, she's all very forgiving of him, but um, it, it's in these days if the police don't investigate properly journalists certainly do yes and they've probably been at it for ages and have come up with a dossier that is really terrifying um the interview that prince andrew gave with um, emily Maitlis was was a car crash uh, all time um and he worse than ever that he thought he'd done very well yes i mean he was dodging and diving and actually was praising himself for being so kind and nice. And that's why he stayed with um, uh, Epstein, Epstein yeah. in uh, Madison. And, but also that he was trying to save the taxpayer money. Well, we know that's the bottom of Andrew's list. He's been a spendthrift all his life. Um, and the, 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 the nub of it is that um, two uh, protection officers and his equerry haven't been able to give an answer to where he spent the three hours uh, at at about the same time that uh, Virginia Roberts was over there. And what she complained was that she was abused at 17 by him. Now, there is the royals keep an absolutely meticulous itinerary where everything, big and small, is noted Mm. down. So there's a very big question mark here. So that if he what they didn't know what he was doing, maybe he was getting up to rather appalling mischief. Well, quite. I mean, they make it clear, and, and you'll probably know as well as I do, that Stephen Wright and Richard Pendlebury are very thorough journalists, both of them, uh, who have done this investigation for the Mail. I know them both very well. Yes. They are super They're superb, people. aren't they? And, and I mean, uh, it does make clear that on the night that he did stay there, uh, there was no sign uh, of Virginia Roberts, who's the, the woman who claims that she slept with him more than once. Um, but what I think is very telling is the confidential royal facts uh, about that particular night. His Royal Highness will return to New York. He will spend that evening at a private address 
and depart the following day. Um, this is what I've always wondered about his claim that he was in Pizza Express that night uh, when he was supposed to have uh, been with Virginia Roberts because even his own daughter says she doesn't remember going there and there must be somewhere a record of where he was that night. Yes, that's quite heartbreaking, actually. I think Princess Beatrice has been very brave to say that she can't remember that. She does love her father, and she wouldn't want to say anything that would make his situation worse. But the fact that she decided to be honest in terms of what she saw is very, very commendable, I think. And it does put him in the pizza or in the soup, as it were, but... um, What is important, I think, is that the royal family, i.e. the Queen, Prince Charles and Prince William, have decided that William does not represent them anymore. Mm. Um, This is their way of standing up themselves and um, accepting that whatever he's done doesn't smell right. Mm. And he, he has tried very recently to come back and be helpful, particularly since uh, Meghan and Harry are no longer around. Yeah. But it was made very clear that he doesn't stand a chance. And this is their way of... Um, being honourable themselves. Well, I think that's that's true because there's no real way that you can imagine Prince Andrew appearing uh, in any kind of public uh, situation, given no. all of the stuff that we've now read about him. I mean, people would just and, be and appalled. No charity, I mean... no charity wants him to support them. No. And particularly, he had several charities that involved children, mm. and um, that would be totally in, inappropriate. Yes, absolutely. But he right. was crazy, really, because he said for so long that Epstein was an associate, not Mm. a friend, and he saw him once a year. Well, I managed to find out four um, times he went over there, you know, several years. So it was all nonsense. But he did invite him to this huge party Mm. in 2000 where William was 18, he was 40, Princess Anne was 50, um, Princess Margaret was 70. And you don't invite someone who is an associate to that. So wherever you look... There is not sort of honesty and straightforwardness. Mm. Um, He hasn't got the common sense to realise that the public are not stupid, the the police are not stupid. And um, no one's actually accusing accusing him of anything yet. What they want is to know what he knows. And that's what he's not actually yet got round to telling. No, uh, and he will have to go eventually to speak to the FBI. There's no way around that, is there? Well, you don't know. I mean, he can make one excuse after another. They, they're not going to come over here and drag him back because he's not actually been accused of anything. Mm. Um, he's quite lucky with the pandemic because nobody expects anyone to go out their house at the moment. Mm. But um, we shall have to wait and see. But the thing is, of, of this dossier, is it's going to go on and on and on until there is a proper answer. Yes. Well, they used, and, to, they used to call it, um, you know, the water's beginning to reach his ankles now, didn't they? Yes. And that's not a very good thing because the water's still coming in, it would seem. But luckily, Angela, luckily, there is some good news uh, out there because Meghan has made a surprise appearance on CNN to tell Uh us all about the power of the human spirit. Yes. Isn't it lovely? I have to say that I find her presentation of herself (laughs) rather irritating. It really is. I mean, she does... does, 
try and be incredibly regal, despite the fact that she hated the royal family and she wanted to get out there. She is very regal. She talks down to us. She's slightly patronising. She always uses the we term, the royal we term, which means that everybody must agree with her because she knows what everybody's thinking. And this is to thank the silent heroes who provided food and done wonders and helped out the pandemic. She's entitled to say what she likes, of course, but it's her way of saying oh, it. Yeah, and I've noticed... Sanctimonious claptrap, isn't it? I'm sorry, if you're not <laughs> going to say it, I will. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I've noticed. I've noticed that both she and Harry have a, a new intonation when they speak. Yes. And that is they say a sentence, long pause, another yeah. sentence, long pause. They give three reasons why something is good. It's all so formulaic. Yes. Poor Harry can't really do that because he's spontaneous. Mm. I still like him very much in spite of what he's done, but he's spontaneous. It, it comes from his heart. Yes. And, and she's got it all prepared. That well, I she's am... an actress, right? I mean, that's what she is. In the end, every time she appears on the screen, I see her acting. That's what she's doing. Yes. Unfortunately, that's right. And at some point, you have to show your real self not always be acting No, up. quite. And also, rather disingenuous for her to refer to challenging times. I mean, it's not that challenging when you're living in a mansion in Montecito, California, with 16 bathrooms and a five-car garage, you know? Yes. And, and it's worth, um, you know, 11 million, that house. Yeah. And it is ridiculous. But also, I have to say that when they have done something, it's been very small and it's been for a very short time. Mm. And they get their own photographers there and nobody knows how long they're there. But I have been told that sometimes they stay for 10 minutes. So it's not been a huge effort on their part. But again, once again, it's do what I tell you, don't do what I do. I'm too grand for this. I've got so many important things to save the world that I can't do these small things. But I will keep you boosted up yeah i don't like that you no. know it's talking down to us exactly wait till they start roping in paul Archie, you know the kid with no friends will get him out there you know talking to the camera just well, about surviving sorry that poor little archie has so little contact <laughs> with his father's family i know it's a great shame it really is awful no extended family at all angela delightful to talk to you thank you as ever uh royal biographer angela levin there telling us about prince andrew and this devastating uh, it has to be said devastating uh, dossier which has been produced by the daily mail uh, over the course of the last few days and it ain't going away by the way either and uh, andrew isn't going to be appearing anytime soon uh, it was almost a year. In fact, I was reminded just last week that we made him Plank of the Year last year because he had done that ridiculous interview with Emily Maitlis, which he thought had gone well. What a plank. Unbelievable. He might be on it again this year. We're going to be doing that coming up towards the end of this week. Plank of the Year. What a joy. This is Talk Radio. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. I'm sorry to refer to another media organisation, but Sky News currently has an interview with Sadiq Khan, the man who won't come on this radio station because he's too frightened to be asked a question he doesn't like. Um, He looks ridiculous. He's wearing a sort of a red and green and yellow tartan-esque mask. Um, And I can't imagine what he's saying, uh, but he's obviously saying that uh, the government needs to shut everything down in order to safeguard the nation. Let's talk to Peter Hitchens and try and get some sense out of it all. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. Now, I don't know whether you've probably not seen uh, the Sky News uh, episode with Sadiq Khan, but this nonsense of closing schools in East London, in Greenwich in particular, uh, that he's supporting, appears to have no commonsensical uh, sort of reasoning behind it at all. Well, it's very strange because right back in the summer, it was pretty much concluded, even by the most fanatical zealots for shutdown, that closing schools had been a mistake. Yeah. Uh, that the, the school children are pretty much uh, untouched by COVID virus, even if you think it's as serious as, as, as many people do, and I actually don't. They, they don't tend to suffer from it. There's been no particular evidence that they spread it either. Uh, so the closing of schools is a, is a very worrying and retrograde step, though I do myself wonder how many schools have been quietly closed mm. on the pretext of somebody uh, coming in and being tested positive. I have to say again, because I, I, I am amazed, even some of my allies among lockdown sceptics are beguiled by these so-called figures of infections and the, the R rate and all the rest of it. Mm. What piffle this has always been. These are not people who are ill. These are people who have tested positive. Uh, and let's just assume for the purposes of argument these tests are actually accurate, who've tested positive uh, for, a, for a disease, but in most cases are showing no symptoms of it. Mm. Uh, it's, it's described as an outbreak. An outbreak of disease is when a lot of people are ill and have to go into hospital. Yeah. And again, over and over again, analyses show that the numbers of people in hospital are not actually spectacularly different from the numbers which are generally in from respiratory diseases at this time of year. No. Once you've allowed, particularly for the growth in population and for the growth in the in the elderly population, they're not surprising. 
So it, it's just confected panic, uh, and it has no purpose. Mm. And let's also go past here. I think every single broadcast discussion, except here, on this matter, assumes that shutting down the country, shutting down London, closing businesses actually reduces the number of deaths. Mm. There remains absolutely no evidence at all that this is the case. None, whatever. No. If you don't assume it, and if you look at the figures, you see that there's no evidence of it. It's The whole thing is, is, is like going around the country, trying to stick all the leaves back on the trees to stop awesome. Yes. It's a completely <laughs> futile exercise in trying to prevent uh, natural events taking place, which are normal, and in most cases actually pretty harmless. And one of the things that they've said uh, this weekend in the Sunday Times, a SAGE report, uh, was the terrible toll of Thanksgiving in America. And again, they're doing the same thing over there as they do here. They're counting numbers and saying that things are bad in particular hospitals and numbers are up in admissions. But they say that about particular wards. For example, you know, if you've got 10 COVID beds and you've got 10 COVID patients, you are full to bursting, which does not in any way describe the situation, does it? Well, it, 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 it may well describe a, a, a fact about a particular hospital, but that may well have been the case a year ago with yeah. influenza and pneumonia, and diseases which I keep stressing that seem entirely to have vanished this year and, and to, to be miraculously cured by some, by some measure that we know not of. People just aren't getting them anymore. But the, the problem in this country, I, in the United States obviously has separate difficulties and each state is different. The problem in this country is that the National Health Service Management over the past 20 or so years has hugely reduced the number of spare beds. So every winter, when respiratory disease is spread, particularly among the old, there is pressure on those beds. That's not a national crisis that justifies closing down the economy so that in future, we'll be able to afford even fewer emergency beds in the National Health Service, which is what will, of course, happen mm. once people realise what's happened to the economy. Yes. And I mean, the other thing I discovered this weekend is that SAGE is made up of many different people, including quite a large number of what is called social psychologists. Now, I'm not sure what a social psychologist is, but it doesn't sound very scientific to me. And I watched one of them being interviewed on TV at the weekend. And it was all about, you know, behavioural science and what people are likely to do if you tell them to do it, what people are likely to do if you say this and that and the other. And this is clearly what is leading government policy. Well, it is very curious when you look at these bodies, and uh, quite a lot of the professors who appear on television in various parts of the country telling us that we should all uh, hide in our homes and, and, and stop working and, and destroy our, our liberty and our economy. If you look at them, they turn out not to be uh, medical experts mm. or, or even experts in experimental science. But as you say, uh, people with the word social or psych uh, in, their, in, their, in, in their supposed disciplines, which obviously means that this is not hard science, no. but soft science, anything with psycho in it is is uh, is soft science because we, we it's dealing with matters of the mind on, on which we have no hard evidence there's an enormous amount of pseudoscience being talked here whereas you get real really serious people such as sinetra gupta and uh, and, uh, and bhakti whose uh, whose ideas are pretty much excluded from debate mm. to this day it's almost impossible to find any admission on the bbc or in much of the media of the existence of the great barrington declaration a huge number of scientists saying we were attacking this in the wrong way because the debate is never had. No. And I, I was talking to, a, to an old friend from Australia this morning, and it's quite clear that in Australia, an awful lot of the things which we know here, because at least we have a more, a, a more live media here than, than in, in most, uh, in, in most Anglosphere countries, things we know here are pretty much unknown over there. They're simply not discussed at all. Mm. Well, I was told by somebody who's familiar with what happens in Australia um, that as soon as they get any kind of case at all, they just shut everything down again. Uh, and then they walk around saying how great it is that they've controlled the virus. 
but except they haven't really. Um, and well, it's... Here is the logic. Somebody, it, it really is, it, we've had the Danish mask study, which showed definitively that there is no serious evidence that masks prevent the, 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 uh, the catching mm. of the virus, and from which one might deduce it's quite unlikely that they pr prevent the spreading of it either. But uh, that exists. That is the only hard science on masks. But most people don't even know it exists. Mm. Uh, and, and there is no hard science at all on the relationship between the, between the shutdowns and the number of deaths. If you go, as you look at Peru or, and Brazil, for, for contrast in South America, you could, if you look at Japan, uh, if you look at Korea, if you look at the major European countries, you will find no congruence between the severity of the shutdown and the number of deaths. Mm. And, and it's co correlation, as people often tell me in another debate, is, is, is not causation, but it's often a, a guide to what might be causation. And it, but you have to have it first. We haven't even got correlation in this case, which would allow us to investigate causation. There's, there's no evidence of this, and yet it is universally assumed. You watch Newsnight, you watch anything on the BBC, everybody in any debate on this will assume that this is so. And I can't say it often enough. We have no evidence that it works at all, uh, but we do know for certain uh, that it has, it has caused devastating consequences to, to the people suffering from mm. other diseases in the health service. And it's also caused devastating consequences to people who are losing their jobs and who are, and whose businesses are crumbling around them because of these restrictions. Yeah. These are the undoubted results. We continue with this because of this extraordinary faith which some people seem to have in their political leaders. And I have no idea uh, why anybody should have this faith at all. And they, they, if, if anybody had any at the beginning back in March, they really ought to have lost it by now. And yet it continues. Yes. Well, uh, I mean, uh, it, will come as no, it will come as no surprise to you because we'll talk about your broader assertion at the weekend about the, the uselessness and the and the lack of intelligence that appears to be uh, abounding in Westminster in our, poli in our political class. But it turns out I was talking to a doctor this morning, Dr. Lawrence Gurlis, who wants to take part in the, um, the in, in the test and release scheme, which means that if you come back from a holiday or a business trip, you can get tested by your GP and then you can go back out into society they have made every single gp surgery register as a laboratory in order to do this right he can't register as a laboratory because he doesn't have a laboratory manager he doesn't have a laboratory staff uh, and he doesn't want to pay 1800 pounds for the privilege of being registered as a laboratory and this is what the government is making doctors do well quite and uh, uh, but in any case how many how many people have tried to use their gp recently I know some people are lucky and they still have a reasonable gp service but in a lot of cases, GP surgeries are practically inaccessible. People have to hang around in the car park to be told they, they can have an online consultation. Yeah. But they, actually, the, the, the primary gatekeeping function of GPs and national health service is, in many cases, more or less coming to an end. And what, it, what happens to the rest of the national health service? I shudder for people waiting for any kind of elective surgery at mm. the moment. How long yeah. are they going to, have to wait for it? And, and the, the queues which build up now as they build up, means more people will be joining those queues and it will get worse. Mm. And, and none of this is being addressed by a government which is continually obsessed uh, by a crisis which is more or less invented out of statistics. Mm. That's right. And they, they keep warning about uh, getting worse. And, and rather than actually addressing how it is, they keep telling us how much worse it's going to get. And despite the fact that it doesn't get any worse, particularly, uh, as you've pointed out and as I've pointed out in the past, they continue with this refrain, don't they? Well, I, I hereby predict that this is very likely that sometime in January we will, we will be told that there is a third wave in yeah. the program. Uh, and you will have to examine it very hard to discover whether it exists or not. But I, 
urge people, as with this second wave, to be very cautious about accepting face value anything that they're told. This whole business of the, the proposed shutdown of London, which was resisted by, uh, by ministers at the time, on the grounds that they knew that huge numbers of jobs would be destroyed by it, which would be saved if they didn't go for Tier 3. This whole business of now having another go at imposing Tier 3 on London uh, is, a, is an illustration of the relentlessness of these, of these panic merchants who cannot admit that they're wrong and will not give up. And it is, it is it, I, I sometimes think uh, that the campaign which I and others have been waging uh, since March, to, to point out this is disproportionate and a, and a grave mistake. I sometimes think it's, this campaign has been wholly defeated. And then I, I'm on my way home, I bump into maybe five or six people who say, please keep saying it. Yes. Maybe, just possibly, if we keep on saying it, and it, it, it does seem repetitive sometimes, if we keep on saying it, people will begin to realise that there is something going on here which mm. really does come to an end. Yes, and we can't not say it now because you and I, Peter, have been doing this, although we started from perhaps opposite sides of the fence on we it. You know, we're very much on the same side now and I don't think I don't think I personally could stop saying it. I mean, I could not suddenly turn into uh, a hypocrite overnight and say, oh, and now suddenly I believe the government, you know, because something has happened that's led me to, to, to that conclusion. Because what I do know um, is that your um, consistent kind of calling out of these people as incompetent uh, just, just doesn't change but it surely must at some point I still have faith in the system but I don't have faith really uh, in the government on this subject I don't have faith in the civil service I really don't even have faith in the NHS anymore about this well we are I think we are definitely approaching at some point in the not too distant future a political crisis and it won't just be this that's led to it mm. I think the consequences of the mishandling of our departure from the European Union will be quite so radical as well and severe particularly uh, in the initial months as we get used to not being in the single market anymore. I think people may be quite shocked by what happens mm. and how much it changes their lives. I think a political crisis is coming. I suppose the only thing that, that, that people like us can say is that when it does come, uh, that we should make sure that the case which we're making now is not forgotten mm. and that we should try and get into politics a superior type of person, people who actually understand how life is lived, uh, who are uh, who, who are genuinely knowledgeable and intelligent, rather than this ridiculous uh, class of ambitious ex special advisors uh, climbing to the top out mm. of nothing other than than, than 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 office politics ambition, and, and actually begin to have this country governed by people who love the country and care about yeah. it and know about it. And they seem to be obsessed with the one thing that they can't attain, which is popularity. You know, they seem to be driven by the data that we keep being told, uh, even though the data is effectively made up by people who make models every day uh, and pretend that things might happen if you don't do something. I mean, it's almost like Alice in Wonderland time. Well, data is fascinating, but it needs to be examined. And it, it's, it, there are often, there's often more than one view about it, what, what it means. And I, I'm not against data by any manner of means. I hunt for it all the time. And, and, and sometimes I find data which seems to suit me, but which I say, no, that's too good to be true. Mm. And I won't take it. What we want is, is, is people in the media. And there are some, but not enough, uh, who are prepared to examine the data in that in that forensic way and not to be beguiled by the fact that it comes with a government label on it uh, or that it, it, it looks convincing. Everything needs to be questioned more. And that's our job. Mm. You and I are doing what the whole journalistic trade ought to be doing, questioning what we're told instead of swallowing it whole. There needs to be so much more of that. And if we've learned anything from this, is that is, is that the whole idea that we should question 
uh, needs to be revived in the training of journalists and in the whole attitude of, of, of editors and news desks, that they should stop simply taking what they're told and, and, and printing or broadcasting it without examination. Mm, quite. What do you make of Germany right now and what they're doing? Because I, I was quite surprised, um, in one sense, um, that Angela Merkel seems to have now decided that all of her policies in the past didn't work. And despite the relatively low number of deaths uh, that they are currently seeing a slight spike in, um, they're, they're basically cancelling Christmas to a large extent. Well, I've never been a huge enthusiast for Frau Merkel and her government, and I, I think her remember that she she is a, a child of the old East German culture, yeah. and possibly naturally, as a result, reaches for the bureaucratic and heavy-handed response. Mm. And I think that maybe that's that's it. And again, in Germany, while there has been opposition to this, uh, in some cases quite large opposition. It's been, and this is another problem of German politics because of the, the nature of the major opposition party. It's been classified as right-wing extremism, and and, and they're and they're therefore ignored. The fascinating thing is, you look at most of the continental countries which have shut down quite rigidly and have imposed muzzle wearing pretty much universally. They, the, the, the on their own measure of, of, of cases, and indeed on the more, much more objective measure of deaths, so that's obviously open to interpretation as well. They aren't doing particularly well as a result of all these measures, are they? No, it's not as if, they, as if they've they've escaped the, the consequences of the of, of the disease measured by their own standards. On the contrary. But they've been held up, of course, as, uh, by the enemies of, of the government. And I don't call myself a particularly enemy of the government, just a critic of it, um, as one of the great sort of advantages of European modern uh, diversity. One of the things that we were told was uh, their test and trace system was done much better than ours, um, partly because they had many more private laboratories involved than, than we did, because ours was all very much centrally based. But I think, as you've said before, in the end, more or less every country will end up in the same boat, won't they? Well, probably. I mean, there are differences. Some people had had uh, had higher numbers of deaths earlier, and some later. Uh, but if this is quite likely, uh, what's happening is that people of of a, of a certain age are most vulnerable. And it, it, if it didn't if it didn't uh, carry people off in the spring, it might carry them off in the autumn and so on. And uh, I think in the end, probably when we come to examine the the excess deaths, uh, two things will become apparent. One, that while this was obviously an outbreak of a disease which killed uh, people in, in exceptional numbers, it wasn't that big. And the other, that these measures didn't really have very much impact upon it. The very, very most they could have done, which is what we were told initially they would do, would have been to d delay and displace uh, deaths and illness rather than actually prevent it. Hmm. And, th and that was what they honestly said at the beginning. Now there seems to be this, this, this genuine belief that they can actually they, they can actually stop the spread of a virus by by state measures. I think, as I say, that is like like sending troops around the country, sticking leaves back on the trees <laughs> to stop boredom. Yeah. It, it, it is it is completely an utter utterly unrealistic uh, misunderstanding of the of the limits on the powers of states to affect events. Yeah, and they've also completely and utterly changed. And this will have to be the last question, I'm afraid, because we're out of time already. Uh, they seem to have completely and utterly changed their stance on the vaccine. The vaccine was going to be when everybody was going to be able to return to normal. And in fact, the vaccine doesn't stop you getting it. It doesn't stop you spreading it. And it doesn't uh, stop you from having to self-isolate if you're told to. Well, it... it... <sighs> I mean, my my view on the vaccine has been if 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 it if it if only it makes people recover their 
their sanity about this, then then let them have it. I, it it's oh, I'm not against the vaccine, but it hasn't. But it's not changing but anything. It doesn't seem to be doing that, and I and I it, it has been obviously reasonably rushed. Uh, the question has to be asked whether it's been rushed too much, and whether as a result it's not going to be as effective as it needs to be to actually restore level-headedness to government and people. Yes. But if anything, I just pray that something will soon restore level-headedness to government and people, because if, we, if it doesn't, the losses in life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness and prosperity that we will sustain will be so great that people will, will, will be wondering 20 years hence how we got ourselves into mm. this mess. Exactly right. Peter, thank you very much indeed, as ever. Peter Hitchens, uh, columnist of the Mail on Sunday, uh, talking absolute common sense as ever, uh, which is what we do here because we are the home of common sense. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, there were a couple of stories around at the weekend. Some uh, were trying to stir the pot, I would suggest to you. Uh, and some I would take with a pinch of salt. For example, the idea that somehow all supermarkets have been told secretly uh, by the government and by ministers that they should stockpile because there's going to be shortages of stuff coming up in January because of Brexit. Similarly, we were told that there was a problem uh, on the motorway down to Dover, the M20, uh, because there were uh, some stacking up of lorries going on, which goes on quite a lot and probably more than you would know uh, for all sorts of reasons. But supposedly this time, for the reason that there was a problem at customs, there was a problem with some of the, uh, the, the, the shipments that were being made because some of the freight lorries were overloaded because they were stocking up. You know, it all sort of, for me, sounds a bit like some kind of uh, narrative that's being set out by people that don't want Brexit to be a success. And believe me, there are plenty of them, and some of them are in the media, I'm sorry to say. Let's talk, though, now to Claire Bailey, independent retail expert, author of The Retail Champion, uh, because apparently, in addition to all of that, which we'll get to, Claire, um, we've all saved seven grand, according to some statistical analysis. But I, I, I don't know where it's gone, because I haven't got seven grand lying around. Oh, you mean in terms of what we've all saved yes. from uh, working from home? Yeah, I actually did a piece of work on this uh, right back at the end of the first lockdown. Mm. And when you look at an average commuter's costs in terms of things like their rail fares yeah. and or parking charges, things like buying a sandwich and a coffee at work versus having it at home, all of those things stacked up and offsetting them against your increases in your household electric, it worked out for an average commuter about £120 a week. Mm. So if you turn that by the 50 weeks of the year you probably get quite close to that number so it does sound quite reasonable to me to be fair you should be working for sage claire with that kind of mentality because that's the sort of thing <laughs> they do they come up and go that's why we have to lock everybody down now because this is how they save money i mean the thing is um you know it's all very well but i mean there'll be plenty yeah. of people who only make i mean let's not forget the average wage in this country is still you know less than thirty thousand pounds a year so you're talking about more or less a third of people's income i just don't believe it well, I think it really focused on people who are commuting in and out of London and, of yeah. course, the costs of travelling in and out of London, travel cards, parking, and even down to things like work clothes and a cup of coffee. A couple of cups of coffee a day can set you back over £5 a day. Mm. So that's uh, instantly £25 a week for a five-day working week. A sandwich at your desk could be another five us, so and then you're at 50. And before you know it, it's really racking up. But, of course, it's not going to affect everybody. I think this is more at the top end of the commuters rather than the sort of... Yes, I think, I think, I think we're talking... These, these kind of, uh, you know, um, civil servant types who who, uh, who live in Tunbridge Wells and have a sort of, you know, <laughs> uh, a rail card that costs them 8000 a year and all that kind of thing. Exactly. And they're all doing terribly well. Thank you very much indeed. And none of them want to come back to the office, by the way. 
<laughs> no, well, exactly. And I mean, why would you if you can save that much money every mm. year? Yeah. I mean, there is no doubt, isn't there, that the, 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 the work sort of habits of people will probably now mm. change forever. You know, so I think we're well past the point. I think it was back in September when it looked as though we were going to get office back uh, sort of populated and I yeah. thought that I would lead a campaign for that to try and get people back in offices and it looked as though it was going quite well until suddenly there was a sort of uh, a secondary lockdown that kicked yeah. in and everyone was told to work from home again so I just think it's gone on too long now for people to return to it five days a week. It, it's probably true and I think we had that conversation in September time as well about the negative impact on yeah. all those businesses that depended on the commuter traffic and I'm doing some work with some of the major UK rail stations they depend so much on the retailers and the hospitality yeah. outlets to pay rent to supplement the cost of operating a station and if those businesses can't succeed then it really does have a domino effect a knock-on effect so yes we need an element of commuting traffic but then it's all sort of you know where the money was wasn't spent in the commute it has been spent locally so local small businesses have benefited where commuter type businesses have sort of suffered in many respects yeah well people do say that i mean certainly the train traffic is way down isn't it that hasn't really yeah. increased at all that hasn't really got better i mean i i know people who come in uh, on the train into london and they tell me that it's really not that much more busy than it was when it was a, po a total lockdown right at the beginning mm. Yeah, and I think that the work-life balance effect of people choosing to work from home has shifted the way that money is spent. So this kind of plays into the other conversation we were going to be having is about the supermarkets. Because yeah. where perhaps we'd have had the coffee at the office, the sandwich at the office, our consumption from supermarkets has gone up because uh, even down to the, the whole ridiculousness of the toilet rolls. But at the end of the day, if you're based in an office and your loo rolls free of charge all day and now suddenly you're using it at home, your consumption of home-based products goes up versus as your consumption of wholesale products that are sold into your office venues mm. and your office canteens and so on. But it does seem rather ridiculous, does it not, for, for officials on the one hand to say, oh, uh, there might be some problems in January with shortages of supply, um, but whatever you do, don't stockpile anything. Because you're kind of going, well, hang on, you've just told everyone effectively yeah. to stockpile everything. And this has been a conversation that's been going on for a long time. It's probably over a year ago that I had an interview. I can't remember if it was with itself or someone else, but it was with the uh, UKMD for Aldi. And they were explaining that they didn't expect to see shortages mm. because so much of their produce was UK sourced. But then obviously there is going to be plenty of product that isn't UK sourced that could uh, experience shortages, especially perishable goods that might get caught up in the docks. And it's been a very real problem that's been talked about for years now. Yes, no, it has been. But there again, I mean, we do have these problems from time to time. Like I say, at the weekend, um, we were told that there was a bit of a, a tailback on, on the motorway, which happens from time to time anyway, uh, for one reason or another. Sometimes it's because the, the French customs uh, uh, workers are on strike. Sometimes it means that the dockers are on strike. Sometimes yeah. it means that, you know, there's a few more lorries than there used to be. You know, all of those things feed into it. But by and large, it tends to work OK. And I can't believe there's going to be shortage of anything, really. Well, it's about just over 20 years ago, I hate to say it, that I worked for, um, at the time, what was Dixons and Curries. Oh, and yeah. My role was moving 940-foot vehicles around the country a week uh, between 19 warehouses and bringing them in and out of container parks mm. and uh, depots and all sorts of places. And we regularly had issues yeah. at peak times of year when there was gridlock in the network and it wasn't anything to do with changes to customs and imports. It was just because it was very busy at yes. that time of year. Yeah. And I think the same applies to these supermarkets deliveries and the hoo-ha about that mm. this time last year i had my arm in plaster and i've never booked a supermarket delivery at christmas i couldn't drive 
I tried to, and there were no slots available. Yes. This is a normal problem at this time of year, and people right. always encouraged to book early. Yeah, well, I mean, I could blame Brexit for my Ocado delivery last week, uh, in which half of it didn't come which did not please me in the slightest. You know, they sent me an email just before the bloke arrived to say, oh, we haven't been able to include these items and there are no substitutions. And it was half the order. I mean, you know, and mm. I was just going, well, what's the point of me getting a delivery if you can't deliver me half the stuff? But if you want to make it an issue about Brexit, you can easily do that and say, oh, well, it's obviously something to do with the shortage of, uh, of, of lamb mints coming across the channel. Really? Well, who knows? Only they know. But what we do know is that it's a surprise when you don't get substitutions. Yes. And that's got nothing to do with uh, whether it's to do with Brexit shortages or coronavirus. It just is that if you happen to order a bunch of stuff that for whatever reason they don't have in stock, mm. they can't deliver it. And that just is how it is. The only way you can be guaranteed of getting what you want is to physically visit. And we are discouraged from doing that. Yes. And, and even that sometimes isn't entirely uh, uh, something that you can guarantee that you're going to be able to get exactly what you want. Sometimes you go into a shop and they don't have the particular brand of exactly. the particular thing. They might not have, you know, when I go into Waitrose, the vintage reserve champagne, which is rather nice. <laughs> and it's only 22 quid. I'm not trying to make this into an advert for Waitrose, but, you know, um, sometimes they don't have it. But you don't moan about it and go to complaining and say, what's all this about why haven't you got it i demand that you must get it you know just get something else i'm reading in the papers today that there was a big spend at the weekend four and a half billion pounds customers and consumers shopping uh, their hearts out for christmas and that certainly would suggest that there's no shortage of money around well i don't think there is necessarily a shortage of money what the issue is there's a shortage of confidence in so much as nobody really knows what the future is going to hold and how long these issues are going to prevail, particularly in areas where hospitality is closed down uh, in the large majority of cases. That's, of course, tier three, but it's very impacted in tier two locations as well. And that will lead to a loss of confidence, particularly um, perhaps at that end of the market who uh, wouldn't necessarily be the biggest spenders because they are, you know, it's fair to say they're not the most highly paid jobs when you work in pubs and restaurants, but it's something. And those people may be very nervous nervous for the future and if their employer is likely to reopen and furlough is only going to last for so long. Yes, indeed, that's right. And what about the idea of, of sort of Christmas spending this year? Because obviously mm. um, there's lots of, I mean, um, the PS5, which is supposedly the big new thing, seems mm -hmm. to have been held up in, uh, in, in some way. It's been bought yeah. by a load of uh, what, what I would regard as, as, as sort of sharks who seem to be trying to resell the original sort of uh, allowance for twice the money on eBay. Yeah, well, I mean, even then, you could go back more than 20 years. That used to happen with things like the Teletubbies or the Buzz Lightyear doll. Yeah. Or whatever was the big thing. Tracy Island. Do you remember that one? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. No. I think that's... No, uh, no, it, was, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. The, no, it wasn't the original Tracy <laughs> Island. It was the. It was the. Uh, it was the sort of revamped Tracy Island when Thunderbirds came back into fashion. Oh, maybe I'm a little too old in that case. But uh, there were a number of toys that always went into short supply. Right. And these days, toys have got ridiculously expensive. They're high tech and, and a huge financial commitment for families. And what typically happens is toy manufacturers, and I, I include the console manufacturers in that, do short supply to make sure that they sell out because mm. that creates the hype. But on this case as well, there are shortages coming out of the factories in the Far East where a lot of these things are produced because they've been affected by closures due to 
the, the virus. Okay, so yeah. there is limited supply in a number of items. And it's not exciting stuff either. A lot of it can be things like refrigeration products are hard to get hold of too. Yes. And I mean, I must say, as far as things like, you know, the stockpiling of toilet roll is concerned, I have a little story for you, which which might suggest that people weren't doing everything as we thought they were. I've got a, in my street, um, there's a sort of little corner shop, but they also own a laundrette. I went into the laundrette during that first lockdown. Uh, stroke dry cleaners and it was rammed with toilet paper and I said to them uh, mm -hmm. what are you doing what you've got all this toilet paper and she said well the guys who own the shop next door bought it all and this is the only place they can store it so I wonder whether an awful lot of it was being bought by the smaller shopkeepers so that they could sell it for a bit more money and I'm not accusing everyone of doing that but you know that would suggest that's why it all went missing so quickly well, there was a bit of that. There was some stuff in the news about people marking it up, but it doesn't do them any favours in the long run. It creates a certain amount of animosity between them and their customers. Well, so do you know, I stopped, I stopped using no the dry cleaners. I thought, well, that's not really mm. on. You know, I'm not having that. So but if all they, they were doing my... was helping them store it, I guess once it's bought, it's bought. But what did happen, and the British Retail Consortium reported on this, is we had something like eight weeks worth of surplus food in our cupboards under the first lockdown when people did panic buy. And it was things like you know, what I call the Armageddon stuff. So it was pasta, it was tins of food and all, all the frozen foods and things. And the shelves were genuinely bare and people were buying way more than they needed because they really did have a genuine fear that it would... Uh, it, things would run out and even my daughter at the time was 15 and she's saying well mom what we're going to do if all the food runs out so there was fear going right <laughs> through to secondary school right. aged children yeah because i think i think the news was perhaps making people feel panicked and even though we were told not to panic buy if everyone gets told not to panic buy you start to question it and well, think, well perhaps i should then if everybody exactly else if you well exactly if you tell people not to do something because there might be a they shortage if you do i mean it's like when they say oh you might you know don't don't go and panic buy petrol you know, the next thing you mm. see is a great big queue of cars trying to get in, into the petrol station. But, Claire, listen, I'm sure you and I will enjoy Christmas. Um, we'll talk again perhaps before that. Uh, have a good one. Claire Bailey, independent retail expert, author of The Retail Champion. What a great job she had before driving, not driving, but sort of managing the logistics of loads and loads of lorries being driven around. That's the sort of ideal you know, job you want as a teenage boy, isn't it? You just think, that would be great. That would be wonderful. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.